Matthew 5, verses 10 and 11. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This past week, as we saw the Taliban forces swallow up Afghanistan, even the capital city of Kabul, pastors in the country have begun reaching out to other Christians around the world, asking them, Anxiously for prayer. One pastor sent a picture of the small room in which he was hiding with his family and he wrote, This is where I am living. We are hidden right now in different areas. Another pastor said, We can't go out like normal. It's dangerous. We moved to one of my friend's houses, but it's not safe at all. Mindy Bells in her article for World Magazine has let us know that pastors say the Taliban have now contacted them saying that they are coming for them. One brother, when asked if he or his people were in physical danger, replied, not only me, but my family too, because of me. Another brother described these days as dark and said they feel like they are in a storm. And then he asked if we, as fellow brothers and sisters, would pray for revival. Revival. That's faith. Friends, what makes Christians like this? What makes Christians who are willing to endure really really, really hard things and yet have joy and yet have peace and yet have resilience. None of us, as far as I know, have had to face anything close to the kind of pressure our brothers and sisters are facing around the world, not just in Afghanistan, but around the world. Yet many of us have our own kinds of Difficulties, sorrows, and trials. What can make a Christian who's willing to endure? I believe the answer to that question comes in understanding some essential things about the gospel. It comes from understanding some essential truths about the very truth that we make central to our lives as followers of Jesus. And being a follower of Jesus, we know, is not an easy thing. If somebody told you that it was, I'm sorry, they lied to you. Jesus himself faced much opposition to the point of his own death. And his followers, as we have seen, as we have gone through the book of Acts this summer, faced much of the same. Opposition has been at every turn for God's people. 
Even as they received the message to go from their city of Jerusalem, where many of them resided, to Judea and Samaria. And now as they move to the ends of the earth, they cannot seem to get away from pushback, opposition, hatred, ridicule, and persecution. We saw this begin last week as Paul and his friend Barnabas, the son of encouragement, began their first missionary journey. God had told Saul, who became Paul, that he would go and that he would preach primarily to the Gentiles. Last week we saw that they began that journey in Acts 13 and they began to move their way from Antioch in Syria where they were located at the church there. They jumped on a boat, sailed to the, 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 the island of Cyprus and then from Cyprus sailed further west into the area of Perga and Pamphylia. And each step of the way, as they've taken the message of Jesus Christ, they have faced this very real reality. And it is the reality of opposition. And as we come to the end of their first missionary journey today in Acts 14, we see that it continues. And yet we still see the same thing that's happened over and over and over again, is that Christians, when they understand some essential truths about the gospel message that we have been given endure. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Today we're going to be looking at the entire chapter in just a moment. I'm going to read the entire chapter to us. It's only 28 verses. If you're new to the Bible, forgot your own, don't have a Bible of your own, you can always use our pew Bible there in front of you. Acts 14 is on page 868. 868. When you get there, just look for that big number 14. That's where I'll begin reading in a moment. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible of your own or you know a friend or neighbor who needs a Bible, we do have free Bibles in the foyer. We'd love to give you one today as our gift to you. Well, friends, let me invite you to stand once more for the reading of God's Word to us today. As we consider... How the gospel message equips us for endurance. Hear now the word of the Lord to us from Acts 14, 1 through 28. Now at Iconium, they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now in Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, 
brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayers and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated, friends. This section breaks up nicely, this chapter at least, breaks up nicely into three different sections that I want to highlight this morning. And I want us to see really how the gospel itself, how the gospel itself is what equips us to endure. And not just to endure a long, melancholy and defeated, but to endure with joy and with gladness and with a Godward gaze. Three sections I want us to see. The first one is that the gospel divides. The gospel divides. And we see this in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 14. The second thing I want us to see is that the gospel confronts. The gospel confronts. And we see this in verses 8 through 20. And finally, I want us to see that the gospel fortifies. The gospel fortifies. And we see this in verses 21 through 28. Now as we consider each of these, my prayer is is that you, as God's people living today and today's world, would be equipped in the same ways. To not just endure, but to flourish in fulfilling God's mission. So let's see if we can get at that by jumping first into how the gospel divides. Look back at verses 1 through 7. We see here a beginning Uh, a a beginning rising of the pattern of Paul's ministry and his ministry with those who come along with him. Here it is Barnabas. And and there's a certain pattern that begins to rise up in what he does. He will go to a city. And when he arrives in that city, he preaches the gospel. The gospel is received and responded to with belief. But at the same time, often there is opposition. That opposition turns into division. That division rolls into persecution. Persecution. And more times than not, in light of that persecution, Paul and his colleagues flee 
to the next city. Here in chapter or verses 1 through 7 of chapter 14, the, the real focus, though, in that pattern is the division that it begins to cause. That this gospel, at its root and at its core, when it is preached rightly, causes division. You see there in verse 1 what this gospel is. It says that when they entered the Jewish synagogues, they spoke in such a way. They spoke in such a way. Luke here is already beginning to draw out the proper and improper ways of preaching the gospel. That there was such a way in which that Paul spoke that it got the desired results. They spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Friends, just straight out of the gate, there is a practical application for us here to understand. And it's the very thing Sean prayed for in his prayer that there is a real way to preach the gospel appropriately and there is a certain gospel that we preach and this is the desired end in preaching Christ and him crucified that the result would not be that we feel better only that we have some cool ways to do life but that finally and fully the very hearts of men, women, and children would believe. And so we see here this thing that Paul spends his entire life focusing on. That he ends up writing about in the very last letter he writes as an old man to Pastor Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4.3, he says that there... People will not always put up with sound doctrine, but they will look for those who will come and will tickle their ears. It's Paul's way of saying that there will be those who look for ways to make them just feel good. This is why as a church we make such an emphasis on the importance of sound doctrine. Because it is only when we have sound doctrine and a biblical gospel that real life change can happen. And we see that that life change happens here, not just in the synagogue, but it happens among Jews and Greeks. But there's not just a commonality of belief on the one hand, there is also a commonality of opposition on the other. You see there in verse 2 and 3 that these unbelieving Jews, those who did not receive the gospel message and respond with repentance and belief, began to stir up the Gentiles. And it says there that they poisoned their minds. Literally in the Greek, it means to turn them bad, to cause their minds to spoil to the gospel message and to the brothers who brought it. So in light of that, what does Paul and Barnabas do? Look at verse 3. Some of y'all thought that they would have fled here. But what does it say? So they remained for a long time. That word so there, literally in the Greek, is therefore. Some of your translations may translate it that way. They were opposed. The Gentiles' minds had been poisoned by the unbelieving Jews. So they had begun to oppose the message that these brothers brought. Therefore, they stayed. In a world that is full, and in churches that are full, many times of people who at the first sign of hardship, jump ship and get out of Dodge. We are confronted with the reality here of what a love and passion for the gospel 
does. It causes us to stick it out. The resilience of Paul and Barnabas is a needed correction for many of our hearts where we want to run away. Whether that be in individual situations or big life situations. See what these brothers did. So they stayed, remained for a long time. And what did they do? They spoke boldly for the Lord. They didn't just hang out and quietly sit in the corners talking about Jesus. But they were bold about it. And how could they be so bold? How could they do such a thing? How could we, in our current culture, in our current climate, in the, in the junk that we face in our lives, how can we stick it out? Well, look, they had some help. They spoke boldly for the Lord. Remember Luke, when he uses the word Lord here, is not talking about God in a general sense, but he's talking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They spoke boldly about Jesus, who bore witness to the word of his grace. Friends, thus far, really, in the book of Acts, we've seen two people or two groups testify or be witnesses to Jesus Christ. First and foremost, it has been the Holy Spirit who has borne witness to Jesus, but he has done it through the apostles who are called his witnesses. But now we have something altogether new. It is Jesus Christ himself who is bearing witness if you want to know how these brothers stuck it out and remained for a long time, it's because they had Jesus on their side. They had his support and his help and his own testimony that he bears through granting them signs and wonders. But what is the outcome? And this is how we endure. Step one, first thing to see is understanding the outcome whenever the gospel is preached, whenever the gospel is declared, whenever Christians stick it out and continue to live in light of the gospel, what is the result? It's always the same. We see it here. Look back at verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Now, don't get it wrong. Before Paul and Barnabas showed up, the city was divided. The city was divided between Jews and Gentiles. They had different cultures, they had different religions, they had different beliefs, they had different practices. But all of a sudden, a new division shows up. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Friends, this is the story of the Bible. This is the story of the Bible. That there are really only two ways to live. There are really only two camps. There are really only two peoples. There are those who remain in Adam and the sin and rebellion of God. And there are those who are in Christ and stand in his kingdom. Just consider all the ways the Bible talks about this. Jesus brings this up in the very gospels himself as he talks about the day that will come when the sheep and the goats are separated. There will be those who say, I have served you. And he says, you shall enter my rest. And there will be to those, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. There will be those who walk a wide path to damnation. And those who walk a narrow path to life. John brings this up in his letters as he talks about light and darkness. But perhaps most 
particular to this passage is Paul's own words in 2 Corinthians 3, 15, where he says that to those who are inheriting eternal life, the gospel is an aroma, a sweet aroma, but to those who do not receive it, it is the stench of death. Friend, if you're here today and you don't consider yourself a Christian, our prayer for you is that this gospel message will become an aroma unto life. That you will see the great hope, the only hope that is held out for us in abandoning the kingdom of this world and turning to the kingdom of the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And it presents us with an interesting question of why does the gospel divide? Why does the gospel divide? And the reason is this, friends, is because it cuts to the very core of who we are. It cuts to the very core of who we are. And if we will remain king of our own lives, remaining in our sin and rebellion from God, or if we will repent of our sin and turn to the God who made us all, which is exactly where Paul ends up going in the next city. But it's also worth pointing out here the importance as a local church in keeping the gospel central to all we do. That, that like the Jews and Gentiles here, as we've seen throughout the book of Acts and will continue to see, there is a lot of differences. There is a lot of cultural butting of heads that happens. But what unites them together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why as a local church, as different as we are, as different opinions and consciences as we may have, the centrality of the gospel is what binds us together as a church. That any decision that we would make as a church would be informed first and foremost from the word of God and most importantly, the gospel itself. This is why we can have different opinions about Mask and vaccines. This is why we can have different opinions about the best way to educate our children right now. This is why we can have different opinions about what kind of music we like or what kind of clothes we like to wear. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's only one opinion to be had, and that is that it is true. And that Jesus is Lord of all. And he is worth following with all of our lives. No matter how that may look. And so we see there in verses 5 through 7. That Paul and Barnabas stick it out. In Iconium as long as they can. And they find out about this threat against them. And so they flee. As much as they are able. They have avoided persecution. They have avoided physical threats. And pain so that they may continue their ministry. And so they leave there. And you see in verse 6 that we kind of get a summary of what's going to happen in the next section. That they fled to Lystra and to Derbe and the cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding company. And what do they, country, and what do they do? It's the same thing that they keep, have been doing, they keep doing, and that is preach the gospel. So let's see now how this gospel doesn't just divide, but it also confronts. Look at point two, the gospel confronts in verses 8 through 20. You see there in verses 8 and 9 
that Paul, as he's preaching, encounters a man who is crippled. Luke makes it abundantly clear that this man is unable to walk. He mentions three different ways about this. He says that he could not use his feet, he had been crippled from birth, and he had never walked. Luke really wants us to understand that this man truly is unable to walk for himself. He is unable to move about. And this becomes really important because of what happens next. He says there that Paul looks intently at him. And this is something that that comes up from time to time in the book of Acts. We saw this with Peter and John in chapter 3. As they encountered a man who was also lame. That they looked intently. And I really think, just to dig down into what does this actually mean. It means that Paul doesn't just notice the guys there. But he notices them with a spiritual sight. And I bring this up because some of you guys have this gift. I've experienced this in you and I've seen you at work in you. That you are able to discern. That's the word that I would use. A spiritual discernment of the people around you. That you could be talking to someone and you know that they're hurting. Or that they're in need. You can almost feel that something isn't right in their spirit. And so this is what Paul really exhibits here as he looks at this man intently. And it says there in verse 9, seeing with his spiritual eyes that he had faith to be made well. And so Paul says in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And what does Luke say happens? That he sprang up. Literally that he leaped and began walking. Now we see the supernaturalness of this healing. That this man, who had not been able to walk his entire life, which scientifically speaking, biologically speaking, would have meant the very muscles in his legs had atrophied because they had not been worked, all of a sudden is able to literally jump up and walk around something that he had never done. We see here the power And the might in which Jesus can work. But this is not a verse for us to rip out of context and promote faith healing. Which can be popular in our time. As people desire physical signs and manifestations that Jesus really is who he says he is. But here we see again what healing really comes to represent throughout the entire New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, is that it is a means for God to display His glory and to keep the gospel message going. And that is exactly what happens. We see here that the people respond, though it is not like Paul would have hoped that they would have. They say in verse 11, that gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now Luke highlights here that they say this in their own language. This is, I think, important because it shows why Paul and Barnabas initially don't understand what's going on and eventually rush out into the crowd. And what do they say here? They call Barnabas Zeus, and they call Paul Hermes. If you have the KJV, those are translated into different names, lining up with the Roman gods, but they are Roman or Greek gods nonetheless. See, this people here... And Lystra had believed in the pagan mythology of the time. In fact, even in this own 
uh, their own city in this time period, there was a certain legend that went about that at one time the gods had came in the form of men. And so what they see with their own eyes is this amazing thing. And what do they do? They assign it to the religion of that place. They assign it to their very culture. And so they called Barnabas Zeus, who was the leader or, or the god of gods. And to Paul they assigned the name of Hermes. Hermes was the god who brought messages. He was the son of Zeus. And it seems like because Paul was the one with the big mouth... But they say, oh, that must be Hermes then, and Barnabas must be Zeus. The interesting thing for us to note then as we think about this is how these gods were pleased. In Greek mythology, we are told that to please the gods of the universe, we must sacrifice, and they must be honored. And they must be held up so that they do not get angry with us mere mortals and rain down and to cause droughts and to cause natural disasters and to bring judgment upon us. For many during this time period believing in this pagan Greek mythology, they would have been very, very moralistic. They would have thought that the way for them to receive blessing and to maintain happiness and joy would have been doing and offering and working their way into the good graces of the angry gods. And so it shouldn't be a surprise then that these pagans act like pagans. It says there in verse 13 that the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Oxen would have been the go-to sacrificial animal because it was the largest of the beasts that they had around at that time. Garlands, as they still, if you think about like the Olympics and the, the Greek uh, Olympic system or gladiators, the garland is always thrown upon those who, who win or deserve honor or glory. And so they have obviously brought forth garland for, for Paul and Barnabas to offer them honor and glory they think are due to them and how do they respond well we see there in verse 14 when Paul and Barnabas heard of it they tore their garments a sign of lament and they rushed out into the crowd crying out what men why are you doing these things we also are men of like nature with you. They realize what's going on. It's the same thing that's, that's happened a couple of other times now. You think of when Peter goes to Cornelius' house and Cornelius falls down to worship Peter. You think of what happened with Herod just a few chapters earlier when the people said, the voice of a God and not of a man, and Herod is judged because he does not give glory to the actual real one true God. Friends, we may read this and say, what a crazy response for Paul and Barnabas to have. Why did they respond the way that they did? It's because they thought in a way that I think is foreign to many Christians today. They understood the severity of false worship. They understood the severity of not worshiping the one true God. And the severity, it's really given to us 
and God's word to Moses in the Ten Commandments of having no other gods before him. And how that is at the root of all of our problems. And so Paul confronts. We see now how the gospel doesn't just divide, but it confronts. The good news, he says, is this. That they would turn from these vain things, these empty, passing, worthless things, these dead acts to a living God. A living God. This is contrasted to what we're going to see Paul do in Acts 17 when he makes it to Mars Hill. And he appeals to them from their statue to an unknown God. A lot of times folks want to take that passage in Acts 17 and we'll, we'll walk through that passage when we get there in a few weeks and say, well, this is how we as Christians today should contextualize. We should try to, to have good conversation with people and we should try to find the truth and what they believe and, and point it out. And, and sometimes I will admit that is necessary and good and right, but that is not the only way as Paul teaches us here. The gospel doesn't just appeal to the culture around it, but it also confronts it. Do not miss the weight and severity of what Paul says to them here. Look back there in verses 15 at the end through 17. He says that you would turn from these things that he calls their worship empty and worthless. And tells them that they would turn to a one true living God. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He has just stepped all over their religious toes. They would have believed that this world was created primarily when the gods had battled. And the outcome of that battle was that the world, earth as we know it, was created they would have believed that the rains came when they offered up sacrifices to their gods. They would have believed that their wombs bore fruit when they pleased the gods of fertility. They would have believed that the animals were attached to these same gods. And yet Paul says that's not true. There is only one God. And look at 16. In past generations, this living God he allowed all the nations, including you, to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Some big things that he points out here about this living God. He teaches them that this God is the creator of all. And that this creator of all has given past allowance. But that his very creation stands as a witness. That he is who he says he is. This is what we commonly call common grace. Common grace. This is something that Paul goes on to highlight in Romans 1. David may come back to it next two weeks as we look at Romans 7 and 8. But this idea that God himself and children, this is, this is important, I think, for you to understand as well. After church today, when you guys decide to go out on the front lawn and run around 
like a bunch of crazy people. Realize that the grass under your feet, the breeze that blows across your face, the clouds that float across the sky, the food that sets on your table this afternoon, that fills your stomachs and makes your heart glad, all testify that there is a God who is living, and who is active, and who is working. Is this the gospel? It says there, we translate the word gospel in verse 15. And Paul and Barnabas say, we bring you good news. Well, we don't know if Paul and Barnabas get to the rest of the story. But this is at least the first part of the gospel. That God did make everything that we've seen. And in saying this to these people... Paul indicts them that they have broken it and they have not worshipped correctly. Friend, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, whether adult or child, please hear this. That the God of the universe has made everything and that He is perfect and holy. And yet we have not worshipped Him as such. This is the bad news of the gospel. But the good news for us is that it doesn't stop there. God doesn't desire just to fill our bellies with gladness. But he desires to fill our whole lives with gladness through his son, Jesus Christ. That this living God would send his son who would take on death itself to redeem us from our false worship. And whether that's Zeus and Hermes or the gods of money, pleasure, freedom, Comfort, sex, drugs, whatever they may be, that we bow our hearts and our knees to. God has come to take his rightful place in Jesus Christ. And the gospel confronts this. Brothers and sisters, as you are sharing the gospel with the folks around you, do not miss this reality. That no matter how much you engage people with where they are at and love them with where they are at and serve them in practical ways where they are at, there will come a day when you must confront them with the reality of their sin and false worship. And you must speak that the only hope for them eternally is to turn. And to worship the one true living God through the Son, Jesus Christ. And we find then in that gospel that it doesn't just divide, it doesn't just confront. But it's there that we are fortified as well. Let's look at this in the last section in verses 21 through 28. The gospel fortifies. Before we get there, we see there in 19 through 20. That those Jews who are so angry at Antioch and Iconium finally make their way and surprise Paul. They stone him. They drag him out of the city because they think that he is dead. Don't miss that. They think that he's dead. I know some of you get grossed out easily, but take a second and imagine what a man stoned 
with big, heavy stones must look like for the people around him to think that he is dead. They take him out of the city, not obeying. The Jews here do not obey the the commands of the law of God we find in the Old Testament when stoning was to take place, of taking them outside of the city first. They stone him inside of the city, then drag him out. But his friends, followers of Jesus, make their way around him. And notice the response. What does Luke say about Paul? Not that he's okay and he makes his way on to the next. He says that he rose up. Friends, we've already seen one supernatural healing in this chapter. Don't miss the second one here. That a man who had been stoned to the point that the people who him thought he was dead is able to rise up. And he goes back into the city. Think about how surprised they were when he shows back up. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. And what do they do when they get to Derby? Well, many of us would have shut up and found a hotel and hid out and kept our heads low for a few days, wouldn't we? No! When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned where? To the very city that had just stoned him. We see here now that the gospel was so ingrained in their heart and the message of proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ was so much the heartbeat of what they would do that he would go right back to the very place that had just tried to kill him. And not only there, to Iconium where the Jews had come from and to Antioch where the Jews had come from. And they go back seeking the disciples that they have made in all of those places. And we see there how they are fortified. On the way through, they had planted churches. And now on the way back, they're going to build these churches up. They're going to fortify them. And we see really five things that they do there in verses 21 through 23. Five things. Let's look at them really quick. First, as they went through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, first, they strengthened the souls of the disciples. This word strengthened means that they established, that they put on a firm foundation. They strengthened the very souls of the disciples. Second, they encouraged them to continue in the faith. This encouraging is the word for spurring on, for driving on, to, to tell them to, to keep going in your faith. Keep following Jesus. They encourage them there with a third thing, saying to them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The man who is just stoned can speak full well to this. Now this entering of the kingdom of God is, is not a salvation entering, but it is a narrow path entering talk. Like, like Jesus often says. Paul is saying here that on our pathway into God's everlasting kingdom, we will face a lot of bumps and bruises and trials and dangers, toils and snares. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. And then he does two more things. First, they appoint elders for them in every church. It's interesting here just to point this out really quickly. That's why we have a plurality of elders, more than one pastor in this church. It says that they appointed elders, plural, in every church, singular. So plural pastors, every church, singular. And already early on in the life 
of God's people. We see the importance of spiritual leadership. That Paul did not want to leave them without those who could faithfully lead them to love God and to love his people. And then finally, don't miss that, the end of verse 23. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, in whom they had believed. Why does Luke save this for last? Because what Paul and Barnabas realize is it doesn't matter how many elders are appointed. It doesn't matter how honest they are with them about the tribulations. It doesn't matter how much they encourage them to continue or strengthen their very souls. If they do not have Jesus Christ and are not committed to Him, that it is He who builds His church, they have no hope. They understand what Jesus tells us. That He will build His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Because the gates of hell shall not prevail against Him. And so they make their way from there. Friends, if I might just make some practical applications here before we move to this final section. Those of you who are leaders in your family, whether it be moms or dads, grandparents, and those of you who are members of this church, let me encourage you to go back and meditate on these five things this week. And understand the importance of them in the life of the Christian. As, as parents... That we would take up this, this call in our own lives. Because it gets at the very idea of what we're trying to do here. We're not trying to raise good little kids. We're not trying to raise successful people in the world. Those things, wonderful. Pray that they happen. But primarily what we are trying to raise up are disciples of Jesus Christ. Who love God. And who love God's people. And commit themselves to God. And commit themselves to God's people. If you want a family vision, here is one for you. If you want a family call, here is one for you. But even more so, if you want a vision for the church, what the church is to be about, here it is. I, I believe, simple as it might be, and hard as it might be, if we were to give ourselves to strengthening one another's souls, encouraging one another in the faith and speak, being honest about the tribulations that we're going to face, but the kingdom of God in which we are going, God do amazing things with us. So finally, they make their way back to Antioch. Through Pisidia, Pamphylia, Perga, and Italia, they make their way back to Antioch. Not Antioch and Pisidia, but the Antioch that sent them out in Syria. You see there in 27 or 26 that they went back to the place where they were commended. That is that they were sent out from, that they were, that they were given the seal of approval to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So Luke here says outright that the mission is complete, at least for now, for Paul and Barnabas. And what do they say? What do they say? Well, friends, this is where I want to close this morning. And considering... The report that Paul and Barnabas give. Look back at verses 27 and 28. Look at your book. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared, not just they said, they declared 
all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Friends, I realize that many of us have gone through, are going through, or will go through many difficulties. Paul's saying to the church then is no different to us now. There are many tribulations that we will go through in entering the kingdom of God. But doesn't it hit you right in the heart to see that when Paul and Barnabas gave a report of all that they had just went through, they don't mention one of those tribulations at all. This is how the gospel fortifies us. In light of division and confrontation, this is what the gospel does. It gives us a Godward gaze upon our lives. It gives us a Godward gaze and a kingdom-centered life. That in, in light of everything that had just been thrown in their faces, all of the division and opposition and persecution, the very stoning of Paul himself, and yet he would look at the people that sent him out and said, God opened a door of faith. And the Gentiles believed. Friends, this is not just the message of Paul. But it has been the message of Christians from age to age. No doubt it is the message of many of our brothers and sisters around the world even today who stand at risk of being tortured and beaten and even killed. That despite the many tribulations they and we must walk through to enter the kingdom of God, God has opened a door. May he do so for us and may he give us eyes to see. Let us pray. Father, we do need eyes to see you at work. God, how we struggle, how we wrestle, how we feel inadequate to work through, to think rightly, to feel rightly about tribulations, big and small. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts that love the gospel message itself. That we would see how the gospel sets us apart from the world how the gospel is really the only thing that is powerful enough to confront the world in its darkness and how the gospel itself is the very fortress in which we can hide because it holds out the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. May he be our rock. May he be our fortress. May he be our strong tower. Even now, even now, as we consider him in partaking this meal, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.